Hey there, just a quick message ahead of this episode to say we hope you like the rebrand, which includes a new website, rawuk.com. That's the URL. On there, you can listen to and watch all our previous content. You can get extra content. You can also buy our first ever Raw merchandise and even sign up to become a Raw member, which will keep us going and keep you at the heart of this exciting journey, earning perks in return. We need your support, so please do check us out at rawuk.com and remember to like, comment and subscribe to everything we do on all our channels. And of course, make sure you tell all your pals. But most of all, enjoy this latest episode. Cheers. Your name's not down, you're not coming in. So Phil, uh, let's dial back a bit to your childhood. I know that you said that you had uh, you, know, you didn't have a, a troubled upbringing as many of your perhaps peers in the early rave scene might have done. But what was your childhood like growing up as a young black guy in North London in the 1980s? It was it was good. I mean, do you know what? As a kid, I spent a lot of time by myself because my older brothers didn't want to be around me. <laughs> so so I would literally, I'd, I'd literally, I'd, you know, there's two things that I did. One was listen to records. The two was practice my football. And I would just spend hours in the garden practicing my free kicks, pretending to be John Barnes, you know, <laughs> and, or Zico. Um, and, and literally it was just those two things. So it's funny, it's funny when, when I, I look at even at seven years old, how I am almost 40 years, 39 years later, it's not too dissimilar. You know, it's crazy, you know, uh, still obsessed with football, you know, being R9 level. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> and, and obviously music is, is what I do, you know? So it's, um, but it was, it was I spent a lot of time by myself and, and and I think that I didn't have the you know like nowadays kids have distractions of um, devices and tablets and, and, and game consoles and everything else it, they were the only two things I had to do and you got good at those things you know yeah. or you got you had more of an interest so how did in you get into D- how did you get into DJing then oh do you know I saw I knew I wanted to be a DJ from a very, very young age. Um, I, I, I saw DJ Red Alert on the television. It was on the news. This is when I was about eight years old. And I was just like, wow. Like, you know, at the time, you don't understand. But it's years later when you start to piece together why those things resonated within you. You know, it's not coincidence that I saw that and there's something in me that was just so taken, you know, taken aback by it that, that I ended up becoming a DJ, you know, it, it, it was, it, it's not coincidence. It was, um, I, I used to watch that stuff and, and, and just be blown away. Then there was the films like Beach Street, for instance. I love break dancing and popping and everything else, but the bit that got me the most, if you've seen the film, is where Lee is actually making music and DJing because he's the DJ, you know? And, and so those, those things always resonated with me. 
fast and forward. You, and, and so what would you spin? What's when you're in you know, those very early days when you okay. got your the first record I ever bought was seven inch of Shaka Khan, I feel for you. That was the first record I ever bought in my mind. Um, um, I used to listen to my mum used to have the early electro records. Uh, KC and the Sunshine Band. Baby, give it up, give it up. Great track, great track. Um, um, the early, early electro stuff. When I when I heard the electro stuff, that that that's that's what made me go into music, without shadow of a doubt. Hearing that electronic music, the synth, mm. you could probably if you listen closely, you can hear those elements in my music today. You can, so you'll 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 be like, okay. That makes sense. But if I if I gave you an hour or maybe two, three hours of music that I've grown up on, it would it would make sense listening to my music as to why I play and make music the way I do. And and do you, do you remember then the the advent of the rave scene being into electronic music as a youngster, and then obviously you know you've got the Chicago House and Detroit Techno coming through, and then and then becoming Acid House and yeah. Then becoming hardcore and, and you know, the summer of love yeah. and all that stuff. Do you, do you yeah. remember it all and being fascinated by it and thinking, I want a piece of this? Fully, fully, fully. Like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday. I was, so I was about 12 years old um, when it all began. When it, Well, all, I say it all began when I was aware of it, not when it all began. That's when I was fully aware of it. So I got to witness the summer of love where you had um, Sunrise FM and Centre Force FM. I used to listen to those and record those radio stations. You know, um, I used to buy some of those records. You know, the kids that 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 were like a year, two years older than me, they they they'd already started raving. So I used to hear all the stories, and we all used to share tapes and everything else in those days. So you get a tape of all the latest tracks, and it it was so special. It was so, so special. And that's why I, say, I said earlier uh, um, that the, the early tracks you cannot compete with. That house music there, like for me, house music is dead. I don't, like the house music they have today compared to that stuff, when, you, when I listen to it now, it's just like, it's, just complete, it's a completely different genre of music, anyway. You know you sound like an old man, mate. I do, don't I? I am an, old, I am an old man. <laughs> you and me both, mate. <laughs> you and me both. And so, and so you were very young then, too young to be going to raves. Uh, was your, I think I read your first rave was 1992, is that right? Is it the Laserdrome? The Laserdrome, yeah. Yeah. yeah can, you rem- can you recall that moment? I can recall it. Um, it was incredible. Um, I, I knew, no, that was, that was, so 92, New Year's Eve of 1992, that was the first time I DJed in a rave. Right. It wasn't the first rave. It was okay. the first time I DJed at a rave. And uh, it, it was just, man, who, who would have known? Who knew the journey that was about to come? Yeah, how well, old were you? I was in 92, 16 years old. Wow. Yeah. Were you were you shitting it or were you sort of buoyed by the confidence that uh, that comes with being a sixteen year old? Uh, do you know what? I, I it's weird, but I knew I knew I was good at DJ. I knew I had something. How did you get that book in then? How did you get that book in at such a young age? Uh, um, my mate's dad 
used to do the security. <laughs> Nepotism. That is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, Quincy. Quincy's dad used to do, he was the head of security at Laserdrome at that period. And he got me that booking. Wow. Yeah. yeah what a touch. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and and I remember I remember seeing some of the security guards they about five, six years later. And at this point i I'm in my career. And then I what? That's you. That, well, you're, that's you up there now. Because I was I was still I was still a raver, even though that was my first gig, I still rave in there every week. Yeah. So that, so so they got to see, you know, the progress and uh, they're quite blown away by it. And you, you you liked all sorts of music, didn't you? Because I you mentioned Loft Groover, right? Look, a lot of people who are listening to this are going to go, "Who the fuck is Loft Groover?" Right yeah. now, uh, I w- I think I can safely say that ninety nine point nine percent of you who are listening to this, who go away and listen to Loft Groover, will absolutely fucking hate <laughs> it <laughs> because it, it's speedcore. Basically, yeah, it's three hundred beats a minute. It sounds like well. a fucking drill, right? Like it sounds like a drill. Um, some people like it and you know it's not it's a bit too quick for me um i probably stop at around about the 200 beat mark i mean that's about my limit but but you've mentioned him so it means that you know him you know you're into tapes you're a raver did that eclectic taste sort of shape the music you make because i I think that i think that's fair with your music it's 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 all very different yeah i can't if you hear my sets, you hear my music. It, like you say, it's all very different. You know, there's a track called Loft Groove. I do. On my album, yeah. Uh, you know, so you know why that was made. Do you know what I mean? It's a 4 4 track. And it was made because it was that era of Laser Drum when Loft Groove would, would play. You'd have Ray Keith who would, who would play all the, the early sort of hardcore stuff um gache oh, gache it was just ridiculously good in those days randall i mean randall <laughs> you know well, you randall really looked up to randall didn't you did, did, have you ever told yeah. him yeah absolutely what did he say absolutely i have no shame he's a humble guy he's humble ah <laughs> oh, mate yeah uh, he's like cool <laughs> you know, i don't know if he gives a shit to me <laughs> no, do, do you do you now get anybody saying to you that you were the inspiration for them. Who- yeah, yeah. Some guys, do you know what? Some of them, I'll be, I, some of them will, will, they won't want to say because now they're the man. I'm the man now. You're the old timer now. Get a fucking life, you loser. Do you know what I mean? So they won't say. Then there are some who say, I grew up on you. I used to be out in the raves to you. You know, right. AMC, AMC, who's the top boy right now. He openly says it, you know, and and pays respects. You know what I mean? I'm just wow. like, mate, you're the, you're the, you're the man, and I'm 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 totally smitten with you and and how you DJ. How does that make you feel? Yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Honestly, it really is. It's wonderful. I mean, he's amazing. I mean, he's an incredible technician, isn't he? I, oh. Like to, to see him in action, you're like, wow, ridiculous. <laughs> he's like a he's like a machine. He's 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 incredible. Absolutely incredible. There's a handful of DJs that would be on a Mount Rushmore. Just a handful. Are you me. on there? Are you on there? Uh, without question. <laughs> <laughs> Can I be on there as well if we're just putting people on there? 
We're not just putting people on there. Come oh, on. Right. Sorry. Oh, sorry about that. I'll, I'll <laughs> that is a, this, is a, this is the R9 situation in this country, isn't it? <laughs> Someone rates himself. Uh, and so you should, mate. So you should. I mean, and I, would, also, I would be on there. I would be I mean, on you, there. Should. Well, because you, you, you would develop that double drop sound that we've we've, we've mentioned, uh, that we've hinted at. And okay. how, did you, how did you come to develop that? How did you think, Okay, so that's, that's you, that's me, well, you know, that's me, that's my style. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you, in 1990, it could have been, it was um, 1990, 91 it could have been, or 91 or 92, I can't remember. <laughs> there was a track called Spam that Nicky Black Market made, came out on Reinforced. Force Records, Nick O.D. Um, it was Spam. Morning, have you got any Spam? I don't like Spam. Spam, 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 Spam. And then there was an EP by um, um, Rhythm Section called Summer Madness. Um, anyone that knows Rhythm Section, uh, I'm pretty sure it's LSD. I mean, the tracks that they made incredible. Uh, coming on strong, um, and uh, honestly, there's too many to, to mention. But this EP in particular was the Summer Madness EP, and I remember I'd ha I'd, I'd be practicing in my sound labs, and I remember, you know, just mixing tunes, and I did this mix, and they both came in at the same time. Spam and this other track from the, from that EP. And it was just like, honestly, I, I, I've got, I, my hairs are standing up right now because I remember it like it was yesterday. And it just, it's like, that's, that's it. That's how it should sound. Do you know what I mean? It was just neat and tidy. It wasn't called a double drop. That had nothing to do with anything. This, this, I don't even know where the term double drop came from, funny enough. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was, I did that mix and it was just like, that's how I should play. So, a couple of years later, here in Randall, sorry? How interesting. Like, it yeah. went back to 1990. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, when I heard Randall play, I was like, shit, he does that. He, he does that, that thing that I'm trying to do. <laughs> so, and it was, for me, the, the, the way I played, doing all these double drops, like, it's probably just a, some, it's not just a set of double drops. I'm trying to, piece the music together perfectly and blend the music together perfectly. So, and it, it's just that, that that stuck with me, that resonated with me. That's how I felt music should be played. And for me to entertain a crowd, it was, it would be shaped in that way. You know, there's two tracks coming in at the, at the same time. You know, the technicality of of mixing, it wasn't just bloody 32 bar intros, 45 seconds long and then bang. It was more than that back in the day. Sometimes you'd have two minute intros, two minute, 30 seconds intros, and you have to work all of that out. A lot of time it was just done from the heart when you felt it, you know? And, but it just always sounded right to me ever since that day. And I knew from that day, that is how I would want to play my records. Well, Ollie Yates uh, on Facebook asks, can you remember a specific time where your own style of double drop mixing starting to take off? Because he says the music he, he feels in 94, 95 didn't lend itself quite so much to that style of mixing. Uh, but So was it something that came after the mid-90s? 
No, it was it was it, it, it did lend itself to it. It's just you had to you had to you had to think about it. You had to you know not everybody could do it. Like <laughs> no no really yeah. it's, it's, it's like it, for me it's natural. I, but to do it on records, I guess it would be it'd be quite a chore for some. I think, well, you know? Mr. Ray's uh, on Twitter asks, and by the way, if you want to get in touch with us at all, we're on uh, all social medias uh, at Raw UK Pods. Um, he says, how much practice and planning is involved to perfect the double drops that you're renowned for? I mean, I assume as someone who came to DJing relatively late and has only ever really DJed digitally, I, I, I mean, why would I go? Why would I do vinyl if I started in the digital age? Yeah. It's a lot easier because I can yeah, I can look at the waveform and I can go that's well I, I mean that's yeah, you know, I do, I do the little I do that I go that's about that on that one that's about that, on that one. <laughs> right I can't do that yeah. sometimes it works sometimes you're not alone you're not alone there's artists there's artists out there every week at some of the biggest festivals that do just going that. like that you go like that oh. you get a little I should get a little ruler they do it. They do it. They do it, and then they just start and just give me one of their. You know, it's, it's, it's I can worry. make it as a DJ. That's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Maybe you could. Uh, I don't know. Get a wig or something. So you how know. much practice and planning is involved in perfecting it, particularly when it was on vinyl and it was much more difficult? Um, you know what? I, I, the reason I'm thinking is because I've never looked at it as practice. Do you know what I mean? It's you know, like if you're a footballer, you train every day, don't you? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just it's what you do, kind of thing. So, so, so when it's time to perform, you're always ready, aren't you? you know? Well, you know, uh, Matthew Syed, who's a Times columnist, and he used to play um, table tennis for, for Great Britain. He's got a theory. He's written a book about that, and and he basically says, whatever you whatever you do, whatever world it is you're in, ten thousand hours of practice equals professional. Like yeah. so, and that's what sets people apart is because, well, I used to play hockey quite a good level, and uh, I, but I wasn't naturally gifted, and it would have mm -hmm. required me going and training like three or four Extra. times a week, playing two matches. And I was like 18 years old, I went to university, I got into raving, used to get messy all the time, <laughs> you know, used to yeah. get, you know, was into w w girls drinking and, and raving. And I was like, well, I'm not going to play at the very top, there's no money anyway, what's the fucking point? Whereas actually, if you know, you're DJing, you know that there is a point because you could be a job or football, there's money to be made. So actually the practice becomes worthwhile. But they, he does say 10,000 hours. Is that something that you that you think is fair? Um, I, I agree with it, 100%. I mean, I haven't calculated, you know, myself, but I would 100% agree with that. There's loads of us growing up that were into music heavily. But you know what? For me personally, I was into it more. That's why that's why I, I had a career in it because I, I I had that just that extra interest to put that extra effort in. Right. You know? Maybe maybe there's guys out there that, that could have been more talented than me, better more skillful than, than me, you never know. But they just didn't put those extra hours in. It's the, same with, it's the same with football, isn't it? You know, there are loads exactly. of kids who are fantastically talented. They just, but they are yeah. not dedicated, not focused to yeah. it, and they got, you know, they go off and do something else. And actually, yeah. it's those ones. I got a friend of mine. I won't name him, but he used to play in goal for my football for my school football team, mm -hmm. and he later went on to play up front for Wales and uh, oh, wow. and, and and in the Premier League. Well, he wasn't good enough to get in. in he wasn't good enough to get into the, into the football team at school unless he went in goal and then ended up That's playing insane. up front internationally.
Uh, Timmy Jekyll asks about the double drops. Uh, who was it that introduced the big double drop into their drum and bass sets first? Was it you or was it Andy C? Uh, and uh, I'm wondering whether there was ever any rivalry over this as you are both the uh, renowned for your double drops. Um, I mean, like I said, I, I was I, I started it in uh, for myself that day in my house before I'd even played at a rave. Um, I don't know what Andy was doing at the same time. He was, he was probably in the studio making one of the biggest drum and bass tracks of all time <laughs> in 31 seconds, right? So, um, I, 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 I wouldn't want to get into that debate. Where was there rivalry? Um, not from me, there wasn't. Maybe there was from him. Because I think, and I'll tell you why I say that, and it's not to sort of make a dig at him. I think that he was, I would say there was rivalry from him because he's a very, very intelligent businessman. Yeah. So he's very aware of his competition and his surroundings, mm. you know, at that period. Me, I'm just going out, bloody playing. I know Andy's great. I know Andy's great. So I know. Pretty much 10 times out of 10, I was always coming on after Andy. I don't know why that was, eh? But um, I, don't know, I don't know if that was orchestrated. I'm not saying that. But I knew when I came on, okay, dude is great. I've got to perform now. Do you know what I mean? So, so it wasn't a competition. It was, like I've always said, I've always felt that I'm good. And if I'm at my best, then... Whatever you do, you do. That's cool. Do you know what I mean? But I'm good enough to sort of, you know, handle myself in a way. Well, while we're on Andy C, uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you a question about it. I was going to ask it later, but as we're talking about him now, I may as well. He is obviously, he's right out there as this, you know, he's leading the way in terms of drum and bass. He's a, a huge pull. He, uh, he's just sold out, I think, again, to play at Wembley Arena Wembley. for like a second, second time in, in a year yeah. or two. Incredible. So he, he's doing, doing incredibly well. Um, do you think that had you made better decisions and go back to that point uh, mm -hmm. when you were not making good business decisions in the uh, sort of late 2000s, that you could have similarly gone on to do that? And what did he do that you that you failed to do? Yeah, I, I, I do think that. I mean, why not? Um, I just didn't, like I said, I just didn't have a clue. Um, he's got a good, he's got very good people around him as well. They're obviously very, they're very smart, very intelligent, and they care for him also. You know, they're very passionate about what he does also. So, you know, if you mix all of that together, all the ingredients are just right, and you've got an incredibly talented uh, man as well. You know, all the ingredients are right to, to, to take you to that next level. Um, obviously, there's a lot, a lot of things that I, I wasn't aware of. So, you know, I mean, I didn't even, I mean, look at how many nights I've had, for instance. I mean, it's like, I don't know, three or four nights or something. Crazy. It's crazy. Um, so, so you can see that there was no team there to, to assist me in moving forward with this. So, yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, I could, I could have, you know, I, I like to think uh, that I would have, 
definitely taken it to another level also. I, I mean, it's not like I wasn't good enough. You know, it's just, um, again, wrong decisions, wrong moves. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm quite, I'm very comfortable about that. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm... I'm Would you sick. like his life? Because I look at his life and I don't know if he's got kids or he doesn't have kids, but I, I look at his life. You know, he, he went to New Zealand recently. He had to quarantine for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, like, I'm sure that getting paid loads of money probably does make up for it a little bit. But as we all know in life, you don't need more than about 60 grand a year to make you happy. Yeah, Any more than that, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't increase your happiness really significantly beyond that. But he it has doesn't. I can vouch for that. It doesn't increase your happiness. But, but he has to spend his entire life on the road, um, away from people that he cares about, whether he's got a family or not. You know, I don't know that. But you know, away from people he cares about. Would you want that life? Do you know what? It's funny because I got to a stage where I didn't. I love. I have a passion and love for music and DJing and everything else. I used to, whenever I had a trip abroad, I just think, oh man. We'll be away from the family again. Do you know what I mean? I think I think once you kind of come out, obviously he's he's continued, he hasn't stopped. Like a lot of guys haven't stopped, they've just continued. So that's I think once you come off the roundabout, then let's say if it's the problem, or it can be a problem, um, in a sense that once you come off that roundabout, it's very difficult to get back on. And you may not want to get back on. Mm. And, and be doing things at that level, you know, because the, the roundabouts like this is getting faster and faster every day. You come off, it's impossible to get back on anywhere, you know. Um, so, so, but, you know, I'm, I'm like happy and good, good in my own skin. That's, you know, part of being healed from everything that I've been through, you know. So, uh, yeah. Is what it is. Do, do you do you think that um, Andy C's major solo success that yeah, if you were to say to someone who was sort of vaguely into drum and bass but not really who's who's drum and you know who's a big drum and bass name they'd all say Andy C. Do you mm -hmm. think that that um, and obviously that attracts people who might be transient and not quite into it and then they might get into other things so that's a positive of course but generally more generally do you think that. Uh, his, his solo major success is a good or a bad thing for drum and bass in general. No, I don't, I don't see why it would be a bad thing. Well, because it, su it sucks the life out of everybody and everything else. Well, the fact that he can go and do Wembley Arena. Well, a little bit, a little bit, because he is out there on his own. You know, he's not like yeah. he's bringing people with him. I mean, maybe he is bringing people with him. Maybe I'm... I'm no, I'm, well, I'm, he's, I'm, doing, he's doing it all night himself, so it's not... Well, I know. I mean, my, I've said this on the podcast before. My biggest question is, how does he go for a piss? I wonder. Or a poo. If he's got to go for a poo, and that's a real problem. You know, oh, he, he could put on one of his long, epic eight minutes, but you know, no, sometimes you can't do it in eight minutes. You can't do it. You know when you've got <laughs> like a meet. You know when you've got a meeting in four minutes, and you're like, "Shit, I've got to knock this one out quick!" <laughs> come on, come on, and you can't do it because you're under pressure. So, so okay. you know, how does Andy Steen manage? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. An Andy C branded catheter. I think that's what the, the drum and bass scene really needs. Listen, it would sell. <laughs> he's, he's so that man can sell, sell anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, do you know what? I, 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 
you know what? I've I've heard this before. I know I know at the time when he first started doing these all nighters that some people did take issue with it. Um, I, I, do, I do you know what? I personally I would love to do an all nighter. Right. By myself, six hour set. You could do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 it's what did you do? Um, well, I think I think we will be going for that one. Great. Yeah, I think we will be going for that one. Maybe I'll start off with four hours first. You know, you wimp. Yeah. Okay. Six oh, hours. Come on. Now you've said that, <laughs> and and you know what? I'll I'll, I'll, I'll do three hundred kickups whilst I'm there as well to see you. <laughs> To be honest, if you do what most big DJs do, you just put on a pre-recorded set anyway, and you can do kick-ups all night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just move the waves. <laughs> but, I, I, I can do that. Um, I'd be fascinated. That'd be wicked. Uh, like a really, like, I think people would, people would love that. Is, is there a desire, do you think, among the rave community to see a Mampy Swift six-hour set? Do you think you'd, well, you'd sell it well? Is, this is the question, isn't it? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of disillusioned thinking that if I put that out tomorrow, I'm going to have 10,000 people knocking down the doors. I, I, do you know what I mean? I'm very realistic. Build up to it. Build up to it. Build up to it. Start off small. <laughs> you know, uh, as I said to you, I haven't done enough nights. You know, this is the whole thing of, of where you asked with, you know, mirroring Andy's success and whether I could have achieved something close to that. Yeah, with the right, you know, if I made some decisions and had the right team, I could. I would have been doing nights, you know, and everything else. So I've got a good, I've got some good people around me now that are willing to help me with these things. I, listen, maybe better late than not. Um, hopefully, people will still have an have an interest and come out. Um, we, we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoyed the rest of the app. On Friday the 20th of August 2021, a new event, Return to Source, celebrating 90s rave, hardcore, jungle, happy hardcore, drum and bass and techno. Touch us down at Suki 10C in Digbeth, Birmingham. We have Fusion South Coast legend DJ Druid, Quest and Fiber Optics DJ Fallout, 
the uprising northern legend that is DJ Paulo and London Town's final trickster playing his first happy hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets are priced at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Radio. So Mampy Swift, uh, or Swift, as we should say, because uh, you changed your name. You were DJ Swift, and then you changed to Mampy Swift. That was around about, uh, looking at sort of Discogs, it was about 96, 97. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't change it. It was changed for me. <laughs> Why? What happened? Uh, we, we, we were in a, a, a cussing match. <laughs> we were in this, you know, we were a Call FM. Obviously, Call FM is a big part of um, of of how I got here today. Um, so we were on Call FM. Me and Navigator, MC Navigator, used to do a show. Foxy, MC Foxy and DJ Crazy Links also did a show before us. So we'd be in the studio just, just you know, drinking, smoking weed and all the rest of it. Like, you know, like you do when you're young. Um, and... And we would go around the room, you're, you're a dickhead, you're this, you're that. And you know what, shut up. Your, your name's Mampy Swift from now on. We're calling you Mampy, you're Mampy, bro. That's it. Yeah, that's your name now. That's that. And, and we I'm should like, say that Mampy means, Mampy means fat, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it doesn't mean much else, does it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I've never it's, heard it's of like, it before. I've never heard of like, it before you. It's like Fat Boy Slim kind of, kind of title. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know. It means fat, means big. Do you know what how I mean? Did, how did you feel? How did you feel about it. that? Hated it. So why did you get your name? Why did you change your name to it? Because these motherfuckers would not leave it alone, and they kept saying it. <laughs> On it, I'm not even lying, honestly. I hate yeah, but it. You don't, you don't have to change your name. I know, I mean, just because they're calling it you. I mean, I get called. I used to get called. I used to get called Scratchem Latchem at school, but I didn't mean to change my name to it. <laughs> The killer is, is they they did it. They, you could say they did it to mug me off a bit. Like, like that's the honest truth. Like it stuck, so they can mug me off a bit. But the mugging off backfired. You see, and I started becoming this really popular DJ, and um, and then it got to a point where no lie, if people introduced me as Swift, yeah, are you ready for DJ Swift? Somebody's saying the crowd would just be dead. Are you ready for Mappy Swift? What? <laughs> so weird. Why? It's so annoyed. And Why? It's stuck because people are wankers. <laughs> <laughs> all of you out there listening, you're all wankers. Anyone who cheered Mappy but didn't chant Swift, chant, no, chant for it, Swift. It's stuck. And <laughs> you know, there was another DJ Swift as well who was Zinx's mate. Um, and I think it just, yeah, it was just one of those things. If, if It's funny, I, I asked, Doug's asked me about this years ago, you know, and I said to him, really? I've never really liked it kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's certainly that later on, people are like, it's become this thing. It's just do, kind do of Do you like it now? Do you like it at all now? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's I cool. mean, it's in your power to change it. Really. I mean, to be fair, though, it must be quite difficult to change your name. So if everyone knew you were Swift, I appreciate that your career blew up around about that time. So it wasn't perhaps as difficult as it might have been had you have been... No, but you know what? You've you just know, Andy really... C calling himself Andy F or something, you know, it would have been like... You've got weird. me thinking. 
And why did I change it? <laughs> like, you, you ask a very good question, like, why did you change it? And it's it's a very fair question. But it was almost like, okay, I'm starting, I can see, I'm aware of the traction I'm building up. If I make a big song and dance about changing my name now, I think that could damage. Maybe it wouldn't have. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it wouldn't have damaged it at all. But at that point, you know, getting closer to your dream, Oh, man, I'll take one for the team. Sod it. <laughs> Did it cause any confusion among people? No. Right. No, it just it it kind of made it made it what it, it you know what I mean? It, it it did help. I can't Did anybody can't, think that you were a different person, a different DJ, a different artist? At the time. Yeah, because obviously now we've got the internet. You know, you can, you, these things are very easy to find out very quickly. But back then, all it was was a name on a record or a yeah, file right. or whatever. So did people think it was – who's this new guy, Mampy Swift? He's fantastic. Yeah. That Swift guy, mm, didn't think so much of him. Yeah, this Mampy guy, he's amazing. That's a very good point because I think I did – the first few tracks just came out of Swift. Like, first things on Subbase, mm. first release on True Players came out as DJ Swift Yep, as well. I think you changed about, about. I looked on Discogs. It was about ninety six, ninety seven. You know, you've had you've had quite a number of of, of tracks as Swift. Yeah, I think it was just at that point where it was. It was like okay, the name is growing and growing. Like it, it literally, it was growing and growing. And I think that the fact that it was this this thing, man piece, it just it was a catchy name as well. I guess. <laughs> And how did you know things were growing? Is it what bookings are getting more or what? Because again, pre-internet, it's difficult to know what the buzz is. I suppose maybe numbers of record sales. What? What? You can what feel what? it, man. You can feel it. Really? You can feel it. Yeah, you can feel it every time you every time you step up to DJ. Before five people used to cheer for you, all of a sudden the whole arena is cheering for you, like you know, like and reacting to you. Um, uh, all of a sudden. Like your your radio shows getting a lot of listeners, a lot of interaction. Because remember, in those days people would call the mobile and 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 ask for shouts. So all of a sudden, the phone doesn't stop for two hours, non-stop. So you can see there's there's some serious traction getting built up. I'm selling records as well. People are buying more and more records. So, so now, what do I do? These that over here are calling me Mampy Swift. Bloody bloody hell! So Mampy Swift names getting traction. Do I release this record as DJ Swift? Or do I release it as Mampy Swift? Bloody headache. <laughs> Bloody headache. Well, I think you made the right decision by the looks of it uh, in the end. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, Cool FM, of course. How big an impact did that have on, on, on your career? Was that a real big launch pad for, oh, mate. Huge. for your later successes? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you take that out, I wouldn't have got to where I got to. I mean, I wouldn't have been named Mamby Swift, would I? So no, that's true. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I first did a show on there when I was sixteen years old, and and one of my one of my friends from from primary school, one of my primary school friends called Danny. His name was DJ Buzz. He was on Call FM before me, and um, I had a group of friends also who called themselves the Weed Killers. They had a show on Call FM. They were building up traction. So the first time I ever went on Call FM was when I was 16 years old. I went on with the Weed Killers and as a guest. 
mixed it up a few. It was great fun. You know, it's like every every time you DJ, something like that was it's like you were ceasing the opportunity. It was a building. It was a it was another step. Every step, you know. And then didn't do it for about another year, and I bumped into Danny one day um, into Buzz, and he said, "Look, just just come down there with me." So I have to thank him as well, you know, because he's the one that he already had a show. He didn't have to take me down there. Do you know what I mean? You know, he could have just kept the platform for himself. He said, "Come down there, man. Go down there." Took me down there. We used to do a show every week, and it's funny because he left and went up to New Live in Newcastle, and sort of left the music behind for a few years. And in that time, I took I took over the show and started growing and growing and growing. All of a sudden, this guy, this MC Navigator fella comes in one day and like, I'm a kid. I'm looking at him like, this dude is so cool. He's like, he's, he's spitting these lyrics. I'm like, wow. Next week, he comes onto my set and he comes back again the week after. And... Um, all of a sudden, within about four weeks, it's like we just this this thing, this thing happened. This natural link happened with the two of us, where his MC over my playing it was just it was just magical. And uh, we started the one to one show, and I used to go. I used to get the night bus. I used to get the bus down there. In those days, the bus used to be like thirty p. So I'd get the thirty p bus. <laughs> then I'd get the the second bus to get to the studio. And we'd be there all night long. To get home, Navigator would he'd drop me off halfway and give me a tenner. Like, a, like a, this, a tenner knows that, like, that's me sorted for the weekend from him giving me that tenner. It doesn't only get me home. I could buy myself a Ribena and a bagel <laughs> right. and, and have a bit of change left over, you know? Like, so he, he kind of took me under his wing. Um, like a like a big brother, to be honest with you, and and really sort of guided me, was shouting my name from the rooftops, you know, telling everyone how how, how talented I was. This guy's this guy's this guy is special, and everything else, and that that was that. It helped massively. Nice. And so what? <clears throat> without internet, you've got internet, but you're not all pirate stations. But how many people still listen to those pirate stations? But without. Sorry, the internet says, but without the private stations, that was a ready, not ready made, but that was a real obvious route to into becoming what you would all become. Without them, what what do people do? Because I mean, this as we've seen through a lot, then these fucking streams are ten a penny. Like no one's interested. Yeah. Well, yeah, what do I you know. do? I know. For me, Cool FM, that was the major. That's the major one. I mean, we had other. We had Weekend Rush, man. Weekend Rush was incredible as well. Some serious talent that came through. DJ Redan, Remark, Lieutenant Stitch, uh, Brain Killers with MC Fearless. And there were some seriously talented guys on Weekend Rush. And then Call, they came first and then Call came after. And mm -hmm. Everyone's been on Call Effort. You know, Andy C's been on there. Friction's been on there. Um, I'm sure Brian G's... Brian G was on there. I'm sure he took Ronnie size and crossed down there, possibly. Um, literally everyone, you know? There's only a couple of people who haven't been on there. So you take that out and you kind of 
I know you could argue that maybe somebody else would come in and fill that void, but I don't know. It's a big part of history. Yeah, well, I don't know. If, I don't know if anything has. Um, and no. uh, it, it, you were smoke. You said you would. You could go down there and you'd be smoking weed. And here's that drug question that I hinted at okay, earlier. Let's not, let's not go down that road, mate. <laughs> oh, do you not want to talk about it? Would you rather no, not? Go, I mean, go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> it depends what you're going to ask. <laughs> okay. Uh, have you ever done crack cocaine? That's Hell no, 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 no. That's not the question. <laughs> That's not the question. <laughs> That wasn't the question. I just thought, can I ask an extreme one? No, it's going to be much lighter than that. Um, uh, I know a few that have, but yeah. Well, I know. Yes, indeed. Well, it got a bit. It got a bit hairy. We'll come on to that in a bit. Uh, the old scene. Um, no, obviously, back in those days, you were a raver before you were a DJ. I know you were young, but did you did you partake? Did you dabble? I know Kenny Ken gave up uh partying in around about 2005 he told me to concentrate on his career which i find i find <laughs> like, you know was it? <laughs> one, one, he might have been in better shape uh, but yeah. but like which i found wonderfully wonderfully candid but a lot of a lot of djs didn't take drugs but they said oh, i didn't touch you them. know something i'll tell you this from a very young age i was very serious about this i was registered to pay my taxes for instance probably a year after like <laughs> a year after DJ, like I'd only been like age 16, active. 17 a, or something. Yeah, like I registered really early before that I probably early. before I needed to. I wasn't even earning money. But I was that <laughs> serious about it. Do you know what I mean? I was that serious about it. You know, so I was always I was always switched on. I got me buzz in different ways. I think is the uh, the the stock phrase. That you say. <laughs> it wasn't from <laughs> from saving money. So he didn't uh, double drop. He, he only did his double drop behind the decks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did ask the question in, in, in the end. Uh, but how important were drugs to the development of the scene? And actually, I'm interested to know because we're sort of trying to be a bit more upfront here in this interview. How important are they to the modern drum and bass scene? Uh, as much as they used to be back in the day, or or, or less so. It's interesting. I, I I remember being very critical publicly online about something to do with drugs, and and I remember getting getting crucified for it. I had people telling me I was in the wrong business. <laughs> you know, you're in the wrong game, mate. If you if you if you ain't into drugs, you're in the wrong game. They were saying, and I was like, I don't I don't think that's true. But um, and, and the the fact of the matter is absolute fact is ecstasy is a big part of where we have got to today it's, 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 it's from from going back to the late 80s when you had you know um guys who would be racist in the week and at weekends, they'd be on ease, hey, raving with the black guys and they're all together. Nobody gave a damn. So it brought a lot of people. That, the ecstasy, the rave scene, brought a lot of people together. You can't argue that fact. Do you know what I mean? So um, it's had it had a good use. And what about now? I'm not too, I'm not too clued up on what people are into nowadays. I think MDMA is people do nowadays from what I'm aware of. Um, so I, I don't know because where we have a lot of festivals now as well, mm. I don't know if people are getting trashed on drugs or whether they're just going out having a drink and sort of high on life kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not, 
Totally Young away. people are incredibly boring these days. They're the sort of people who might do their taxes age 17. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, what were your um, what were your favourite raves uh, that you were playing at in the 90s? Uh, which ones really stand out for you? Okay. Uh, so I used to do a lot, a lot of raves in the... Um, I used to play a lot of second arenas. So I'd, I'd, I'd be Jungle Fever, but I'd be in the second arena. I'd be at, um, oh, bloody hell, what was it called? VIP Champagne Bash. Incredible, incredible party. At first, me and IC3 would be in the second arena. And we used to destroy the second arena so badly that we'd drag loads of people out of the main room. And in the end, uh, Willie, the promoter of VIP, Champagne Bash. He was the first big promoter to put me in the main room. Like, it was the first one. And, and that's when it was like, yeah, do you know what I mean? You, I, I can deliver, I can deliver against the big boys. You know, I can, I can play alongside the big boys kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a great rave. Um, uh, Jungle Fever was incredible. Telepathy, Wax Club. That was... The first time I played at Wax Club, um, I got a call. Right, we need a DJ to come down. So I've gone down there and bombed big time. You bombed? Oh, mate, bombed. Oh, really? Oh, How? Word. What did you do? Imagine playing to the darkest crowd that want the darkest music playing happy hardcore. It was that, that, that is how much I bombed. <laughs> Like, right. I wasn't prepared, right? I wasn't prepared at all. Because right. the, the call came in. I was at the radio station. So it was like, we need you in an hour or two hours or whatever. So I was like, oh, you know, I was, okay, of course, I'll do it. I wasn't prepared, though. So I went Fuck, I've only got my happy hardcore records. Mate, honestly, <laughs> it was, I, I was, I was, yeah, it was, it was bad. And, and he pulled me off after 25 minutes. No. Oh, mate, yeah. <laughs> It was like the um, it's like being at the Apollo in the, in the old days, and the geezer would come on, the Joker would come on with the hook cane and drag you off the stage. <laughs> oh, mate, it was a that bomb! Was really demoralising. Oh, see, the next time I played in there, absolutely destroyed it, man. Like absolutely destroyed it. So it was, you know, it was a good thing. It was a good thing that happened. It and, gave and me a tough lesson. And, and what about the uh, the dodgier raves? Because we did hint about that, that you know, crack cocaine did become a big thing in some of the oh, raves. Absolutely. In, 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 what is it, 95, 96, yeah. things like that. And then, and then ultimately, as far as we saw, as far as, we, as far as the narrative suggests that, you know, what Goldie was doing and what you were doing and what some of the other people were doing in creating, you know, drum and bass, whether it's just a name or it's an image or if the sound is slightly different, did rescue uh like like rescue that period but how did you feel about that period where it was dark do you know what this 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 the, okay the sad part is it was still great vibes mm. it was still great vibe that vibe i haven't seen that vibe since then do you know what i mean when you used to get a roar off that crowd in those jungle days it was a special roar it was like a it was like a football stadium roar do you know what I mean? And unfortunately, there was very small elements of trouble. Let's say, let's say a fight kicked off between ten guys 
that there's a raid full of 1,500 people. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, it tags the whole thing with that, you know, it tars it with that brush, unfortunately. And that seemed to happen very often. Um, it, it did change, and it changed culturally as well. Because in those days, it was predominantly black people in the raves in those days, you know? So not only did it, the sound change, but the clientele changed also, you know? They went from smoking gear to now sticking gear up their nostrils. Do you know what I mean? And so it's it just the same shit, but different, mm. you know? Have you seen those memes? Cokeheads looking down on crackheads. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, and, and, it, and it changed like that. Um, it's still an element that, that was that was sadly missed, though, for me, from my point of view. You know, it, it really was. Um, um, and then fast forward to what? I'd say 94, 95, and then 96, it started getting a bit bouncier. Ronnie Size was, was, was coming up, coming up. Um, and then 97, had like Ed Rush Optical myself and very musical <clears throat> a lot of these artists like like actual musicians in a way like yourself did you when you could see these guys coming through and creating some really really smart clever music did that that, that must have buzzed you yeah, absolutely it was incredible i'm the thing for me is i could i didn't know how to make it so i didn't i didn't have i didn't have any musical knowledge i didn't i wasn't interested in the the the, 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 the subject in school was rubbish. Bloody clarinets and, and nonsense. It wasn't the sort of stuff that I was into in school. So I never, I never did any form of, of music theory. You know, the, the, the way I learned to music, make music later on came from torture, self-torture, burying myself in the studio. You know, that's how I learned to make musical stuff. Um, I never realised also that, I never realised that, I, I always thought that people that use samples, you could always tell it was a sample. I never realised that people were just really good at using samples. So I put myself under this extreme pressure to make, you know, going back to making this 10 minute long orchestral track, I put myself under this extreme pressure to learn how to do it, you know. Um, so it, it this, okay, so back then, the standard, obviously, like you're saying, the standard got higher, didn't it? The standard was, was pushed up again, just like it has again uh, when Pendulum came along. When Pendulum came along, they just bloody came in and just blew the whole place up and and just left an aftermath of, of just people just scratching their heads. Some of the biggest producers in the game were just like, what do we do now, you know, after they came in? So it does, it does always elevate you, you know. That's the only way it has to, otherwise it will finish you, you know. And Pendulum did do that to a few people. Pendulum, when Pendulum came in, they messed up a few producers that were really good because they just, they didn't know what to do. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it's the way it goes. So, well, so always... you just get, you get, you sort of get left by the wayside by, because of your inability to create what people like it happens hmm. that's happened it's that whole thing of reinventing yourself well, as well. yeah and that was what i was going to ask you in terms of your um lo the longevity of your career 
you must have an ability. I know that you've had a, a, a tough 10 years where you left and you went away and you learned, and, you know, but, but, you, but you have been here for, for, for a significant amount of time. Is that down to your ability to constantly evolve and, and reinvent yourself musically? Yeah. I mean, I've never given that term too much thought. Which term? Re reinvent, reinvent. To reinvent. To reinvent. To reinvent. I've never given it too much thought. Maybe I should do, you know, but I just, I, I just sort of, I, I've always, I felt the, the one mistake I made around 2005 was I made an album and it wasn't a true swift album. What people would call a swift album. I was, I was influenced by Pendulum, a bit of Dillinger, a bit of this person, a bit of, and it was like, do you, do what mm. you're good at. It's good enough, but just do it. So I've, I've learned that, okay, sort of see what's going on. Not too much though. Just, just check the lines, check the lines of where we're at at the moment and then go back and do your thing. Do you know what I mean? So it may fit in a more modern era. And mm. I think that's, um, that's the way I've always done it. When uh, Ronnie Sides came in and Goldie and, and, and that changed to drum and bass and the different clientele came in, did you think at that point there, you're like, hmm, this has got the potential to find a really much more mainstream audience? Uh, yeah, you could. Well, I know for a fact because I was signed by RCA in 1997. So I don't know what I, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember the guy from RCA, his name was Rob. And he came and he said to me, have you got, have you had any form of problems with any of these guys here in particular? And I said, no, nobody, nobody, not at all. He said, are you sure? I said, nobody, like, oh, cool, I get, I, you know, I just get on with everyone sort of thing. He said, okay, because we've had, these guys have turned around and said that we should not sign you. <laughs> there's, there's people that are more deserving than you. <laughs> So, so, and who said that? Um, it was vinyl distribution, right? Yeah, vinyl distribution. Um, just for, they, they just felt that I wasn't worthy. What would have um, What would have made you worthy? Who knows, right? <laughs> are you mean? making Are you making good music? Are you a good DJ? Well, you know, are you Are you saleable? Was good enough because they sold loads of it. Well, quite. So job done. I mean, what yeah. what, what, do you, what does yeah. it take? What do they want you to be doing yeah. that you weren't already it's, doing? It's bizarre. Lots yeah. of control. Um, yeah. The thing is, they wanted to sign the one RCA. Um, which is, to this day, you know, more, uh, one of my biggest, probably, arguably my biggest track shall we say. Um, and, about, and an absolute belter. And I read one that you knocked out in an hour, which is a, perhaps a lesson for life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an hour long knockout. Cool, blimey. Yeah, it was knocked out in an hour. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe 59 minutes, possibly. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big story um, behind the one. And I used to rent out Sour Records Studio um, in Dalston. So 
I've rent it out for, for over from about, I think it was from 10 at night, no, 9 to 9, I believe it was, 9 p.m. till 9 a.m. So um, they'd give me an engineer who was Ed Solo. Ed Solo would, would you know, put everything into programs. In those days, you had a sound place, so you had to put it all into programs. Just a really tedious, tedious job, um, which is hence great to have an engineer for. So I made about four tracks that night. Nothing special, absolute garbage. <laughs> and then it got to was it 8 a.m., drinking loads of Red Bulls, wide-eyed, been puffing all night. And then um, at 8, I started this track. I just got everything I've been working on, I just pulled up. Like, got the drums and everything else right. I'm just going to make something to play on Duplate. Just something I can mix. Just something that stays the same, and then I can just mix loads of different tracks into it. It's never going to come out. So just just quickly knock it up. Just started, constructed this track. Played one note, one note bass line, pitch bent it. Um, and then I said to Ed Solo, he was asleep at the time. I said, Ed, I'm ready to record. And he's woken up. Oh, cool. that sounds all right, that does. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of, yeah, cool, man. Like, he's like, you know what? Let me put a compressor on the bass. It'll make it sound really, you know, just give it a bit more punch. He's done his bits, put a compressor on the bass. And this is at about 8.50. Presses record. Play it. Tracks recording. I'm playing stuff in. As, as it's recording, you know, um, just to sort of fill it in. Because I know it's never going to come out. So I'm just, just doing whatever. So if you ever listen to the one, you'll hear, you'll hear at the end of a track, there's like random things getting played in. So it gets, it gets done. Um, it's finished. We're out of there at exactly 9 a.m., by the way. So it was like 8.58, 8.59 out. Um, I go into Music House the next day, and my friend Leon, who works there, may he rest in peace, um, he um, he heard the track. Um, actually, I played him a few tracks. I had a few different tracks that I made that night. You know, the, the other shit I'm feeling. And he goes, nah, man, that's the one. I'm like, nah, but that one's all right, though. And he's like, nah, man, that's the one, Swift. That's the one there. I'm like, all right, cool. He puts it on, he puts it on and cuts it. And I remember in Music House, when a track would come on, if it was good, everyone would pop in. I'd be like, what's that? They'd stick their yeah, head in the studio. Wicked. All of a sudden, people would start, oh, hey, what's that? What's that? What's that? And, no, um, it is, it, it's just the one. <laughs> it's just the one, but the killer is, I said to Leon, do you know what? I'm going to call it the one. I'm going to call it the one, because I said to him, it took me an hour to make it as well. Uh. And um, we we actually went out. I had a gig. It was uh, One Nation at the island in Ilford. And I played that track for the first time. And instantly, the crowd went nuts. It got rewound instantly. And that was that. that, that, that the rest is history, as they say. It, how did, it you, feel, how did you feel when, it, when, when knowing you'd created this absolute banger? And everyone loved it. 
Um, that's a good question because I didn't really, I never felt, it's not like I felt, oh, I've made it. I've made it. I'm here now. I never felt like that. Do you know what I mean? I just, it was just like quite a mind blow. Like if people, even to this day, even now today, if I walked into a rave and somebody played one of my tracks, just like, wow, playing, he likes my track. Whether it's an up and coming DJ or an established DJ, I'm always like, wow, you know, like, yeah, I just, I just, I'm always like, just sort of taken back by that. Do you know what I mean? Well, if it makes you feel nice, I played loads of your tracks last night. Oh, really? Just deal it. Just deal it. I like that. I like that. What did you listen to? The one, analog, etc. Some others. But I just had a mix, a solely man P mix last night. So, yeah, went on a little musical journey. So, yeah. That's brilliant. You're welcome. Honestly, from that point, it gave me. It gave me this this energy. It gave me an energy and a confidence when I was in the studio, like, like, like I knew what I was doing. So after the one, I then made high tech. Um, I sort of made them in order of release almost. Right now. And with high tech, I made high tech in in uh, you know Pascal, who is one half of uh, True Players. I made it in his house. He always used to help me out. Um, so he used to let me come down to his place and use his studio. You know, I put tunes out on their label as well. And uh, he'd come in, help me out, and then he'd go back and do some office work. And then if I needed help, you know, come in and sort it out for me and everything else. And then then I made high tech. That took me four hours. You know, so I started getting old at that point. You see, yeah, it went from an hour to four hours. <laughs> but but it was almost like I felt like I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing a bit more. You know, I mean, the one was an absolute fluke. Absolutely. You know, I mean, to make something, I mean, you, you don't make a track like that in an hour. If you if you hear what else came out of the studio that night, you wouldn't even think it was the same producer. You know, like, but there's no, you'd say there's no way. That, that is the same producer so it, it just making that track just it gave me this sense of okay there's something you have something like in terms of production i knew i was a good dj but in production i wasn't as as, as, as sure about myself um so um after that period i had a run of of really good releases I, I, i'd say it was about six seven releases I remember Ronnie Sides putting the most pressure on me I ever had, and I didn't. I didn't really like it to be honest. And he goes, he goes, oh, you're two, you're two big tracks away from making it, man. <laughs> and I was just like, why the fuck has he said that? You've just completely kind of knocked me. Just, I'm just doing it. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to think mm. about making a big track. I'm just making tracks, and just everything seems to be working. Do you know what I mean? Out of that, if you think out of the, from, it was actually started from the second release on my label. So from the second release on my label, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight releases. And there was at least 12 tracks out of that eight releases that were, were punching, which is a hell of a lot of tracks. 
So when he said that to me, it just kind of, ah, it's like, I don't want to hear that kind of thing. Mm. What, what year was that that he was that he said that? Had he won the Mercury Prize by ninety eight? Right, so he had won the Mercury Prize by that point. So he was Should sort have of known better, he? <laughs> well, you know, but what I mean is, is he sort of saying? He, I mean, he's sort of he's he's lived through this and got big, and so he's sort of suggesting how you could do it. Absolutely, but every, but every no, path I, is different. I don't. I don't think he was saying it. He, well, I don't, it's not. I don't think. I know he wasn't saying it from a bad place. Hmm. It was a, a thing of you're just two tracks away, Swift. You're just two tracks away, but that was so much pressure. And you know what the killer is? I um, It got to about a, another release later. And then I had about two years of a year where I struggled because I changed studio and I just couldn't find my sound again until I made Jaws. In, I think that was in 1999. And that was like the first track now i understood the pressure of of having to sort of deliver um should we say a big track i think i think i kind of set myself up for a tough ride in a way because i set my i i, I put the, the level was so high that um it was it was a tough one when you make that many bangers should we say so yeah it was it was it was a I had periods, but I had a good run up until 2004. Your, so your production in the late 90s, early 2000s had a sort of trademark stabby and sort of bit of a four by four sound. And where did that come from, that influence of you do, making that sound? That's, that's all the music I've grown up on. Right. Plus, I'm trying to. Remember, everything I'm doing at that period is experimental. Like now, what I make now is not experimental as, as such, although I've kind of tried to go back to some of that. But a lot of it was experimental. So it was like, right, I, I love 4-4 stuff. Like, let me try that out. Do you know what I mean? When no, nobody else really did that. Why did you – why – if you love 4-4 – why why did you go into drum and bass? It's <laughs> a good question. Because because there was something special about that man. Listening to Goldie, Goldie's early music, Four Hero, Manix, oh man. That's that that music is incredible. And it's just a lot of it was four four in those days, but it but it evolved. It was jungle techno, wasn't it? Sort of like uh, you would, you yeah. would say jungle techno. So it's got that yeah, before uh, with the breaks. Yeah. I mean, God knows why that didn't last. It was fantastic. Doesn't <laughs> make any sense to me. No, it's incredible. Someone told me, and I don't know how true this is, that well, obviously we know that Ron Wells was Jack Smooth, uh, who was producing a lot of that. I mean, if you look at those sort, a lot of those jungle techno tunes in around about mm -hmm. 92, 93, he was involved in a heck of a lot of them. And someone told me, I should probably interview him and ask him, but someone told me that he went into more drum and bass. And actually, because he was such a prolific producer or, or you know, sort of involved in so many great tracks, he stopped doing that, that no one really made him. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. Or if it just went off trend. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I don't have that knowledge, unfortunately. But bloody hell, that's something interesting. I think probably, you, do, you do need to interview him. Yeah, probably do it. You probably do an interview on it all alone. I mean, there's it's there's had a comeback as well, really. Jungle techno. There's loads more people making 
like yeah four beat underneath a, a break beat and i think it's fantastic i'm more Slow of it really. yeah definitely uh, to this day that, that's everyone has their favorite error my favorite error is that whole 93 sound 1993 because if you think about it the music changed uh, quite a high speed 93 to 94 to 95 i mean you think recent uh, recently you could play a track from two years ago and it sounds exactly the same as it does today back in those days if you played a track in 93 there's no way you were really playing it in 95. why did it change so quickly and do you think I wonder if it got. I wonder if it got bigger. I just. I. I never understood it. Hmm. Honestly, I really never quite understood it. The elements changed a bit. Um, heavy ragger jungle came in, and I, I never quite understood that. To be honest with you, it was. It was. It was really fast. Like even ninety three to ninety four. It's. It's crazy how how much it changed. If you go to say January. 1993 to December 1994. It's it's different genre altogether. But I do do wonder whether there is actually, because there's been an increase recently in that sort of old uh, early 90s sound of new uh, record producers making that. But it's because it moves so fast, there's a heck of a lot to explore still. You know, loads. It just went through it so quick and you're like, oh, well, yeah, but we, we we could make loads more tracks like this. It's still there. Absolutely, absolutely. That that you had the feeling, as I said, as we said earlier about how lineups used to be across the board. You'd have Bookham to to bloody Lofgruber, you know, and everything else in between, and it worked. It's the same with the music that you used to come out on those labels. It all worked, you know, the reinforced stuff. You'd have some pianos, like it was relatively happy, it sounded great. And then you went dark, you know, with like I say, with with, with Doc Scott, um, Mannix, mm. Four Hero. I, I mean, it's just that that music is just incredible to me. You know, it was incredible. Well, listen. Uh, next up, we're going to talk a little bit about your label and also a bit more about modern drum and bass. That's it for another episode of Raw, and if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work, and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer, but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we can really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi.